This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast and the exclusive benefits that await your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD history you deserve by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered who actually wrote the Gospels, or how the New Testament came to be? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, Happy New Year, my friend. We are back to work. How does it feel to be back in the grind? It feels very good to be back in the grind. Happy New Year to yourself too, Paul. Happy New Year to everyone listening to AD History right now. feels good to be back in the grind. I took a couple of weeks off, as we both did, Paul, took some time off. And just uh, sitting around doing nothing, it's very nice, but it's only so nice because we work so hard the rest of the year. Oh, it's very true. And I like to think that you and I most certainly earn that time off insofar as we possibly can. And uh, it's it's nice to be back, to get back into the grind. And of course, to everybody listening, because this is the first time you've heard us in the new year. Happy New Year, guys. Let's cross our fingers that 2021 will at least be a moderate improvement over 2020. But I got to say, the bar is pretty low at this point. Yes, yeah, but pretty darn low. Make of that what you will, guys. So today is 151 AD to 160 AD, and this is kind of an interesting episode, and I'm going to preface this by saying what we're about to do is not a change of format. What we're doing today is addressing the question on two different sides in particular of who wrote the Gospels. And for the most part, you and I, Patrick, as we've been cruising along, there's been so much to focus on. You know, that's one of the hard aspects of AD histories. You have to make some very tough editorial choices in terms of what is worth covering. It's why we do the What We Missed episodes at the end of every decade to hopefully recount some of the stuff we missed. I like the way you think. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, that is absolutely <laughs> the truth. Since there's so much, you're even going to at times miss stuff that is super important. And in this case, when we're talking about 151 to 160, Something we've been kind of cruising by, simply because we've been preoccupied, has actually had to do with the writing of the New Testament. And this is an incredibly huge piece of world history, guys. I don't think I need to convince anybody of that in terms of its historic importance. And so it's such a big question, and it's such a big subject, that this is going to be one of those times where Patrick and myself, in fact, team up and use our combined intellects to address a particular topic. So no change of format, none of that, but it's just one of those times that to do it right, we have to do it together, and we thank you for coming along for the ride. But with all that in mind, and a new year and 2021 ahead of us, let's lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary 
AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Thank you very much, Paul. Now, as you said, we are taking a look into something we've kind of brushed over to a degree here in AD history. You know, obviously the birth of Jesus led to Christianity. We haven't really talked that much about Christianity that much in this podcast, but it's been bubbling away in the background of all this history. And we finally want to sort of catch up on how Christianity is doing now. And Paul, you've got a very fascinating subject for us about the all-important Gospels and who exactly wrote them? With that in mind, and thank you, Patrick, I think it is best to set the scene. Circa 33 AD, Judea, a small vanguard of followers of what is then the late Jesus of Nazareth are commiserating after their leader's death by crucifixion with tacit Roman consent. And it's likely that this group did not consist of more than a dozen and a half to two dozen devout followers. And from this point and through the next century at least, it goes from this small vanguard of followers to an existence and a following where there are small Christian communities throughout the Mediterranean world. We know that they were in what we consider Roman Palestine and Roman Syria, Egypt, southern Greece, Rome, and there are even some scholars that suggest that this following may have been found even at this time as far west as the modern Iberian Peninsula, Tunis, and what we now know as North Africa. It is an organic offspring from the seed that was planted over a century ago at this point. And these communities, as I said, they're small. Not all of them have a, an outwardly evangelistic intent. They're not necessarily trying to go out and spread a universalist religion, but it propagates organically. And for most of this time, a lot of that story that we know about Jesus and the teachings of Jesus are in all likelihood disseminated in an oral history fashion. And there comes a point with all of this proliferation that there starts to be certain individuals who decide that this is so important that they have to start taking down these stories. And these are the stories that eventually would form what we know today as the four Gospels that are now canon in the current version of the New Testament. So it begs an interesting question, Patrick, and this is a, a helpful one. At any point in time growing up, because y you and I, we live in countries that are very heavily Christian in one denomination or another, mm. how many times either have you, you know, prior to 80 history, even growing up, have you asked yourself who wrote the Gospels or did anybody ever address that subject to you that you can recall? 
how, how does this ever factored into your life, this question of who wrote it? In all honesty, it hasn't ever really factored into my life. I, um, I did grow up, you know, I grew up in a heavily Christian country. I come from a Christian family, well, partially Christian family. And I went to sort of a Christian school at school. I was taught sort of Christian teachings. And we talk about the Gospels and the Bible. And, you know, you have the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of uh, John and Mark. Uh, but you never actually think, well, I personally, I thought for a second about who wrote them. You just presume the name on the front is the person who wrote it. You presume Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. You presume Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Um, you don't really give it any more thought, especially as a kid. And I'm sure as a grown up as well, I haven't really thought about it anymore. It's it's a it's a terribly interesting question that is is not really given too much thought for a number of reasons. But here's the interesting thing about the Gospels. So let's start answering this question of who wrote the Gospels. And the first thing that is really important to note is that for the most part, even though there's more debate on this as far as the Gospel of John, is that all of the authors of the Gospels that we know today the ones that actually transcribed it, were anonymous. There's actually a great deal of debate as to why these individuals were anonymous. It's very hard to tell, and it's really speculation at this point. Maybe maybe they just considered themselves unimportant, that there's kind of a vessel, an extra step towards creating these texts that are so important to them that they as individuals are not the important factor. It's what they're writing down that's important. And I think that's as good a possibility as any, considering we don't know. But what's interesting is that all of these Gospels, as we know them today and where they're tribute, so you have the Gospel according to Mark, Luke, Matthew, John, all of those names, according to current scholarship to be sure, all of these names were attributed to earlier individuals that in all likelihood, while they could have been the originator of the source information that informs these testaments, uh, the New Testament and these Gospels, were in all likelihood not at all involved in the process. So, for the most part, the Gospels are believed to have been written usually between 70 AD and 110 AD, and depending on the scholar in question, they may push that even a little further to 120 AD. And they come out of a variety of Christian communities around the Mediterranean world. Because like I said, this has been propagating through an oral tradition. And certain communities will have certain emphases on, on certain individuals that they find particularly important, things of that nature. And of course, they begin putting pen to papyrus. But the fact of the matter is that, in all likelihood, the names that are on it were never actually involved in the transcription of it. One is, chances are, if, if you're really just attributing them to the apostles themselves, well, specifically his disciples, chances are they're not alive at this point, even at the earliest of 70 AD. And on top of that, the concept of 99% literacy rate that we largely enjoy today for the most part is a very modern phenomenon. So in the ancient world, usually at, at the, really the best of times, and I think one of those times being the height of, of Athens and it, as a city-state in ancient Greece, the literacy rate among the population tops is about 15%. And if you're in the Roman world, a lot of scholars believe that's probably closer to about 
10%. You really do forget, and this is something I'm always shocked by, how low literacy was in the past, that even quite somewhat recent past, is like something, especially from the countries me and you come from, Paul, where it's kind of expected that everyone can read. It really wasn't a common thing back then. This is a, an incredible modern achievement of ours where in the past, it probably wasn't even always entirely necessary to be able to do things like necessarily read and write to be able to live day-to-day -day life. A lot of times they, they went without, but today it is an absolutely indispensable part of life. You could not live in the modern world without having proper literacy. And it's just, it's one of the great achievements of humanity at this mm. point, without a doubt. So a lot of these fellows that are following him around, specifically when you're back and you're talking about his, his ministry, you know, they, they talk about him coming from a variety of different backgrounds. You know, some are fishermen. I think there's some farmers. There's a tax collector in there. And when you start talking about tax collectors, that's, <laughs> that's, that's probably one of the most despised professions in the Bible <laughs> at that time. And if you've ever dealt with the IRS, it most certainly is still today. I just had to pay my taxes. I just, I've just done my taxes for the year. So yes, I, I'm aware of how much pain they can cause. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's, it's not a whole lot of fun, especially when you're self-employed, because <laughs> you don't have anyone doing it for you. No. Anyway, so they come from all these variety of characters. And so after Jesus's death, they begin propagating out and they begin spreading the word and, and whatnot. But ultimately, those fellows' names were in all likelihood not at all part of this process because they were they were dead and chances are they were not dictating them on top of it. So in this case, all of the gospel authors are anonymous. In addition to that, they're all written in the third person. And none of the authors themselves actually claim to have been present for this. And they make no claim to being a direct eyewitness for the accounts that inform the Bible, with one of the possible debated exceptions being John. But we'll touch about that a little bit later on. So we're not really dealing with eyewitness accounts, or even sometimes coming not, not just from the authors, but those who are taking it down and their sources are not necessarily firsthand accounts either. And from a historical standpoint, the, the one thing you can say about the Gospels is, are they considered historically reliable? Are they historic texts? Are they biographies of Jesus? Are they the day-to-day blow-to-blow accounts of his life and later his public ministry? And the answer, certainly to the first two, is no, it is not a biography. It is not a day-to-day blow-by-blow contemporaneous account by someone who is there on the scene basically doing a fly-on-the-wall thing. And on top of that, in terms of their historic accuracy and are they can they be considered documents of uh, historic interest in terms of our understanding the, the closest thing you can come to that is just you can say well to any extent that they contribute to it they still generally tell the same story for the most part which is to say he existed he had a public ministry and he was executed and on top of that they don't all contain the same details or the same points of emphasis and there's very little there beyond that very general story, those three pieces that I mentioned. Even only two of them talk about, include an infancy narrative, and in which, as we talked about in the first episode, Patrick, is most certainly not something that is meant to be seen as a historical account of his birth. It has, it has very specific narrative purpose in the Gospels in which they existed. And it was interesting, because we were talking a little bit about how these accounts were were written and how and how they came about and you made a point that i thought was really fantastic 
which is something that I had encountered years ago, but you were making the comparison between the how, how we know Socrates through Plato. Mm. I love your point on this one. Thanks for bringing that up again, Paul. We were talking about this just before we got, uh, started recording while going through our notes together. Um, so the famous thing about Socrates is he didn't actually write anything. And I think in the most cynical view, obviously Plato is highly regarded and Plato was Socrates' student. One view of Plato's work is that he just wrote down what Socrates told him. Um, I think that's a really great, mm. you're a great analogy of this sort of thing where it was someone saying it and someone else writing it. Yeah, essentially, because I remember, I remember, I guess this is way back when I was an undergrad, I was taking one of the necessary political theory classes that I had to take as a political science major. And I'd already done my core stuff that included theology, Jesuit University, that's part of the curriculum. And I asked the professor who was teaching this because we were going over the Republic. I think it was uh, the Apology, where it recounts through Plato, Socrates' defense before the Athenian Assembly, which was basically his last stand, right? And I asked him, so when we're reading this, what exactly, what are the sources here? You know, was the writer actually present for this? And, and, and to what extent? And basically what he said was something very, very similar to you, in fact. He's like, he said, you know, it's very similar to how we believe the Gospels were ultimately written, which is that it's not fly-on-the-wall stuff. You're, you're getting stories and, and, and teachings that are being inserted it's nothing that was really considered for the most part a, a chronological contemporaneous blow-by-blow blow kind of thing and so i think that was a perfect example of seeing this sort of thing in the ancient world albeit with different figures and different individuals so that is something that we've dealt with and something that especially when you're talking about something as, as huge as the republic that some other people that are familiar with those documents could certainly relate to and so Ultimately, you have these anonymous authors where they're taking this all down decades later. None of them claim to be an eyewitness. They're all anonymous. They're not biographies. They're not a history. They're not a blow-by-blow -blow account. And so it's rather interesting in that fact. So in all likelihood, like I said, this all came about initially due to the proliferation of an oral tradition. And that is pretty much wraps it up very well, as you would expect in that place and time. It's just kind of the nature of its organic proliferation. So let's actually start looking into how the Gospels were constructed to the best of our knowledge today, because this is awfully interesting. So as far as the scholarship goes into modern authorship of the Gospels, it is very much believed that Mark was the first of the four to actually be written. And if you ever have sat down and read Mark, Something you're going to notice about Mark is that it's awfully to the point. It omits a great many things that are present in the other Gospels that just aren't there. So they're easy on anything that are considered the miracles. There's a whole bunch of symbolism that you'll see, for example, in Matthew and Luke that are totally omitted because, for the most part, this is a Gospel that either A, is coming from a community of Christians that were Gentiles, so for all intents and purposes, a Gentile being a non-Jew, or even more so in this particular case, non-Christian. So, you know, you're Romans, you're Greeks, you know, the various ethnicities that populate the ancient Mediterranean world, where if you included all the aspects you would find in, in for example, Matthew and Luke, it wouldn't mean anything to them because they wouldn't even know to recognize its significance because they're not Jews, they're not reading the Tanakh, they have no background in that. 
And so in a lot of ways, I almost consider Mark, for all intents and purposes, to be something of a Reader's Digest version of the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's believed to have been taken down somewhere around about 70 AD. So if you've been listening to AD history for a while now, I think you probably have a good idea that when we're talking about the Middle East, Roman Syria, Roman Palestine, Judea, how important 70 AD is, not just for the Jews, but for Christians as well, because a lot of early Christians, as we talk about in our later segment, started off as Jews. It's simple as that, because Jesus was a first century Jew living in first century Roman Palestine, and he was a Jew. There was never a day in his life where he had ever heard the term Christianity or was in all likelihood ever called Christ, which comes from the Greek Christos. For all we can tell, it was never his aim to create a religion, albeit a very different take in some respects, which we'll talk about more later on, likely in the next segment, in terms of what he does with those same teachings as a Jew. So Mark is being written in this kind of immediate aftermath of the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. And according to modern scholarship, then that's where the next two come from, in this case, Matthew and Luke. This is interesting because we start talking about actual sources that inform the Gospels here. And it's largely believed based on common information that is in Mark, then is also in Matthew and Luke, that give them a certain commonality. That's one of the reasons why they're referred to as the Synoptic Gospels, because they're very similar in a lot of ways. They're also different in a lot of ways. Get to that in a moment. When we look at that, they seem to be taken from Mark and an additional source we'll talk about in a moment, but let's talk about Matthew and Luke real quick. In the case of Matthew, we talk about this a bit in our first episode all the way back, and how all of these Gospels have a slightly different interpretation and emphasis of what's going on here. And in the case of Matthew, it's interesting because, as I mentioned all the way back then, the chances are it came out of a Christian community that was still quite close to Judaism. And you literally don't even have to go more than a page to to see this being the case, because you see that long genealogy, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and then you get to Jesus. In the case of Matthew, it starts with King David, then on to Solomon, because it is believed that the Jewish Messiah will come from the house of David. And as we were talking about with Sam a few episodes back in that interview— Jesus was from the house of David. So that's awfully important, especially if you are a Jewish audience. In addition to there being a great much in terms of of symbolism in a variety of places throughout Matthew that would speak very heavily to a Jewish audience, especially things like numerology, numerology being a big emphasis, certain numbers mean certain things, and they're placed in just such a way that it would be extremely meaningful for Christian audiences that were also still very close to Judaism that basically convey the message that this guy is important and you should be listening very closely. And of course, in the case of Matthew and Luke, they both have the infancy narrative, which neither Mark has nor John has. And even those infancy narratives are extremely different. As we were talking about a while back, infancy narratives were extremely common at this point in time. They're a literary mechanism to let the audience know that the individual they're talking about is very important. We even see it in Plutarch's biography of Alexander the Great, which even makes references to Alexander being divine, and they're roughly being written in the same general 
period of time. I believe Plutarch finished that around 120 AD. Plutarch ended up dying about 125. It's there, it's present, but they don't even include the same information. In the case of Matthew, you have the Magi, which of course are also in Luke, where they stop to see Herod the Great. When they meet with Herod the Great and basically pay him his respects, Herod the Great talks to his counselors, his the people that are close to him, and he kind of freaks out and basically goes and, according to the infancy narrative in Matthew, sends out an edict that all male children under the age of two would be slaughtered. And in order to avoid all of this, once the Magi show up, and before that even, you have the archangel Gabriel who shows up to Joseph and says, hey, the kid's extremely special, and he also is a target at the moment due to Herod the Great and releasing this edict. So you're going to have to flee for a while. And they go and they and they run off to Egypt. Then, of course, the angel comes back, says, you're clear, you can return. And the story picks up around age 30 with Jesus and what is largely, to any recorded extent, the beginning of his public ministry, whereas Luke doesn't include any of that, which is awfully interesting. So once again, these are not historical documents in that respect. They're simply telling the audience exactly how important they are. And in the case of Luke, Luke, as I understand it, is very much something that's aimed with the Jews in mind, to be sure, but also women as well. So you can see in these three synoptic gospels, they're not identical, but they seem to share common sources. And in the case of Matthew and Luke, that largely comes from Mark, but they're not all the same. And they shouldn't be all the same because they're coming from different places with different points of emphasis with different audiences. Now, when you're talking about the Synoptic Gospels, Patrick, there is a source that is incredibly important that's definitely critical to mention here, and it's what scholars refer to as the Q source. Mm. The Q source, once again, is hypothetical. They believe it exists. It basically is a, a source of information that invariably certainly informs both Matthew and Luke and, to an extent, Mark but they don't know what it is. But if they're going on the theory that Matthew and Luke are strongly informed by Mark, and but they all seem to have other information that they couldn't seem to have put together themselves, you have this Q source. And I know that look on your face, Patrick, you have something to say. It sounds almost like an Indiana Jones MacGuffin, doesn't it? In a way, yeah, I, yeah, I, that's I, I just, suppose that's it just does. what I had to say. Yeah, it's just a really fascinating idea, like this hypothetical what if this magical Q source just just, just really interested me. No, um, I found it really have, fascinating to read about. I don't know that I would call it magical. I mean, I, I guess <laughs> no, it depends on your disposition, but yeah. yeah not, not actually magical, you, you know what I mean. So yeah. like this big, <laughs> this holy grail of sorts. Oh, I do I'm just busting your chops, my friend. <laughs> well, you know, in any case, so that that's largely where these first three come from and what they're all about. But that's only three. It's only three of them. Then you get to the Gospel of John. This is more magical. <laughs> it's a much more fitting word to use here. It is so different than the other three. It, it's been giving scholars fits since quite literally <laughs> the time that we are talking about. For a lot of different reasons. So if you've ever opened the Gospel of John, very long, and it includes stories and, and references that just aren't present in the other three, it's the non-synoptic Gospel. And so the best way to describe the purpose in, in regards to the audience in question when it comes to John is that it's very much for the true believer, because it's so different. 
and because there's so much that's supernatural. And uh, it's also in many ways written in a sense in a, what they called an apocalyptic form of literature, which is not necessarily meaning as the end of days per se in this case. We're talking about it as a form of literature where it's not necessarily meant to be understood in a literal fashion. A lot of the bigwig scholars at the time that were involved in this whole process basically said you have to understand it in a spiritual uh, sense, not in a literal one, but it's still so different. And it's different for more than just the fact that you have what we would consider today in the modern world acts of the supernatural. It also places Jesus on an incredible mantle in a way that the other three Gospels don't exactly do in the same way. Where John is particularly significant in this respect is he's not merely the Messiah, but in fact he is truly divine. His Christology basically makes him God made flesh, mm. to put it simply, which is a, a huge leap. And it was very difficult in terms of its integration into the New Testament because a lot of folks at the time and, you know, for some time afterwards, they didn't really know what to do with it. They didn't really know what to make of it from everything that I can tell. And so it's largely written in this apocalyptic fashion. It's very unlikely that it was the John that we know from uh, John, son of Zebedee, that's referred to in the New Testament. It actually attributes, I believe, the account, though not necessarily the authorship, from the the disciple that Jesus loved most. And we can only speculate who that is. There's a number of possibilities there, to be sure. But one thing that is an interesting side note is that a lot of scholars believe that John, in terms of the John that was part of Jesus' disciples, were actually, was actually the youngest. He may have been as young as between like 12 and 14 yeah, think of it That's in that young. fashion. That's yeah. extremely young. Yeah. And but I mean, even in the ancient world, and if you're coming out of a Jewish tradition, you're 13 years old. That's one of the big steps into mm. adulthood and, and manhood in this case. But we look at you know between 12 and 14, and being part of this, it's it's kind of intense, you know, just to, just to imagine that sort of thing, you know, don't don't you think? Yeah, like uh, this might sound this made me be me interpreting this wrong, but maybe. Being more mystical and magical is a child's perspective on the man. I don't know if that's me being too ridiculous or not, but perhaps John's uh, gospel is more mystical because if it is this John, he was witnessing Jesus's acts as a child and saw him as this greater being than Luke or Matthew or uh, Mark who saw him more as a fellow adult. I've heard that speculation before, and it's possible that that's something that you have to take into consideration here because hmm. it's a, yeah. a very human interpretation of what the originator may have seen, which I think is really just super incredible to say the least. It is. And so, like I said, the authorship of this thing, and it's not just this, I think there's a couple of epistles, all of them kind of written in this you know, highly apocalyptic fashion where there are many things that are involved that for the modern reader, based on the modern conception of the world and, and, and how we're taught and our faith in things like scientific method and uh, having a great deal more cynicism when it comes to these sort of things, where John very, very much stands out among the rest. And largely, these are the four that became canon. Now, let's be clear, there were other Gospels. Like, for example, if we're talking about the Q source, one of the possibilities that the Q source may have included 
one of which is actually known as the Gospel of Thomas, which is not really what we would call a flowing narrative. It's more of a collection of, of sayings and short anecdotes, not all of which, some of which you will see in the Gospels that became canon, but also includes other stuff as well that's actually kind of interesting. But if you were to just pull up the Gospel of Thomas, and you, you can find it pretty much anywhere online, you'll just see it's just this collection of, of sayings and, and aphorisms and short anecdotes, things of that nature, that could have included it. The other thing that could be part of the Q source, though, if we're going back to this concept of the Q source and you know, getting past John here and looking at where more stuff may have come from, the other possibility is also influencing influence from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is entirely possible in terms of Jesus's own experience as well and his teachings, to be sure. When we found them back in the, I think it was the 1950s, they just kind of mm -hmm. stumbled upon them. It was down on, the site was called Qumran. It's on the Dead Sea. And it comes from a a group of Jews that were somewhat removed from the rest of Jewish society at the time of Jesus's life. They were not total isolationists from what I understand, but they were very much there at Qumran doing their own thing on the Dead Sea, and that part of Jesus's influence could come from that. So there's there are sources undoubtedly that were involved in the creation of the Synoptic Gospels, and uh, so many of the questions, of course, that are that surround John in this case. But for the most part, there are the other Gospels. So you have Gospel of Thomas. Of course, there's the whole thing about the Gospel of Judas, which was an interesting find. We only got that purely by accident on some uh, texts that were written in Coptic, which is a language that was spoken in Egypt at the time, and then later after Jesus's death, that was found by a basically an antiquities hunter that then took these papyrus scrolls with the Coptic, with the Gospel of Judas, stuck it in a lockbox out in Long Island for about 30 years, and then they rediscovered the thing that's basically falling apart. So there are other interpretations, but something that's important to remember from a history perspective when we're looking at authorship here and how we're talking about they're not a history, they're not a biography, they're not a blow-by-blow -blow account, it is interesting to know that in general, for the most part, there's no gospel, as far as we know, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, mm -hmm. there's no, these are the exact words and writings of Jesus. And without a doubt, in the case of Jesus, in order to have created the following that he did and to come to the understandings he did, he would have had to be able to read and write in order to study the Tanakh in the way that's necessary. On top of that, when we get back to Marcion later, he has some interesting views on this, but the fact of the matter is Jesus had to know how to read and write in all likelihood to do what he did to ever be taken seriously. And on top of that, and this is awfully important, it's also one of the big reasons why the New Testament isn't just stand by itself. We also have the Old Testament as well, because the two are interlinked. And this is awfully important because when you're dealing with the, the big guy himself, Jesus, because he was a first-century Jew living in first-century Palestine who was not looking to create his own tradition but reform it in, a, in the way that he sees fit, basically, the only way you can understand him is having that understanding of what we call the Old Testament because he, it's constantly referenced. It's, it's the basis of his understanding going forward. And so, Without the Old Testament, there can't be a New Testament, and you can't divorce the two. And we'll talk later more about why this is such a problem in his case. Mm. 
for the most part, this is largely the, the down and dirty of the New Testament regarding the Gospels. And like I said, there are others. The formalized canon is going to come later. You know, we're still very, very early on in early Christianity, where it's not what you would consider to be a huge, formalized, organized movement. Not yet. There's a church. There's no question about it. We've even had popes at this point. Mm. I was about to ask about popes. I was pretty sure we've already had popes. Yeah, and, and we'll we'll get into that history at a later time because it's awfully interesting stuff. There's, there's some odd popes out there. <laughs> They're an interesting, interesting collection of fellows, to say the least. And obviously, we're not even at the Council of Nicaea at this point. So this is still a very nascent movement, but it's an organic one. It's spread from this small vanguard of followers to having communities all over the, the Mediterranean world that are propagating these stories in an oral tradition. And only a few decades prior to what we're talking about right now, they decided they need to formalize them, but understand them in the context and intent in which they are written, which is that for the most part, they're not historic documents. They're not biographies. They're not contemporaneous blow-by-blow accounts. There's no name in terms of the authorship. They are totally anonymous. They're all written in the third person, and nobody for the most part claims to have been there and even in the case of John, I believe it's only a eyewitness account from somebody who claimed to have been there. And so you can kind of understand that from the historian's perspective, which is how we have to deal with this, well, the New Testament certainly has tremendous historic impact, historic relevance. The history of them as a source for history is very limited, especially because they weren't even necessarily written to try to be such a thing. On top of the fact, and we mentioned this in the ground rules, when it comes to writing histories, how we do it and what we think it's important and its methodology changes significantly over these 2,000 years. And even though there's no reason to necessarily conclude that these were intended to be as such, it is an excellent example of how methodology and outlook and intent in this subject changes radically over time. It really is, Paul, and it's been such a great look into the Gospels you've given us. I have one kind of big question to ask you in regards to the Gospels. And, yeah. Uh, it, I, what I want to ask is why you're saying there are many more Gospels that haven't been canonized into the New Testament. But what I want to know is why have four been canonized into the New Testament in the first place? To me, in my simple monkey brain, if you were to start a religion, you'd want one definitive narrative for your religion. You'd want just one that everyone could get behind and agree upon. I just think to have four different interpretations of somewhat the same events just seems like it might make confusion in your religion. It might debate, what does this mean? Well, Matthew says this, well, Mark says this. Why, if you know it all, why do you think four, these four Gospels, the one that got... Um, canonized as opposed to just once say why didn't the new testament and christianity just go we will just follow mark and not worry about the other ones my guess is probably maybe because they don't think all of them tell the full story elements of all of them and all the and on top of that because they're all so different they can speak to a lot of different audiences in ways that they can potentially better understand than a, a different audience that comes from a different rearing and, and different education and tradition it gives four distinct perspectives on the individual in question. And if I were creating a canon of Gospels, 
in this case. Obviously, not all of them are fit to make the cut for a number of reasons. I'm not even just talking theologically speaking. It's just sometimes there's just not enough to go on. Like, for example, the Gospel of Thomas could be a great source for the other ones, to be sure. But as a reader, what do you really do with it? Mm. These are not super narrative-driven texts, with the exception of what is now referred to as the Holy Week, where for the most part we get a a general, generally similar account between the four. But if if you're asking me personally, it's because they don't all tell the same. They have to. They all give four different perspectives that are telling the greater story, and you kind of have to understand them in that way. In addition to the fact, as these things are constructed, it certainly has a far wider appeal because there's always something for somebody that they can grab onto that they can understand while still getting the bigger ideas that are mm. in question, even though some of them are more explicit in terms of the the theological import uh, of Jesus, it, there's obviously a significantly different understanding in terms of the question of divinity, in terms of just being outwardly explicit about it, between, like, say, Mark and Matthew, and then, of course, John. They all have a different purpose, they all have a slightly different audience, and they all add to the greater figure in ways that an, an amalgam is is really quite useful and and really insightful from a theological perspective. That would be my guess on the subject. And well, let me throw it back at you. If, if you, Patrick, <laughs> were given some sort of supreme plenipotentiary powers to create a canon of Gospels, what would be your priorities in choosing those that eventually make the cut. Well, like I said, I just want one. I think we should just have one gospel that we just have, and we all agree that one. No, um, I do think you have oh, some God. very bad. <laughs> no, just God, joking. it's hard enough with Ford, but getting <laughs> yeah. it down to one—that's also another thing. Is there's probably some element of appeasement in there as well, if you think Exa about it. Yeah. I imagine, yeah, like you're saying, why do we have these? They're all sort of bits of the jigsaw, not that. Not that, I mean, say jigsaw is to imply that Christianity is a puzzle, that's a mystery that needs to be solved. It's not that. They're all just accompanying pieces. They all accompany one, each other. They fill the blanks of one another. They each bring their own thing to the table, really. I guess that might be the answer as well. Like you said, they just all bring something new to Christianity. Now, something I'm curious about, Patrick, and this, mm. is, this is not from a, a theological perspective, but it, it's more from a curiosity perspective. Have you ever sat down and just read any of the Gospels from beginning to end? No, <laughs> simply, but no, I haven't. Um, while I do come from a religious background and had some religion in my school, it was never that thrust upon. I definitely read extracts and had extracts read to me and like no, no the larger general Bible narrative. Um, but no, I've never sat down and read a Gospel. I might read one. Though. I might read Mark. You said it was Reader's Digest. That sounds like my cup of tea. I wonder it's, de who it's definitely shorter. Yeah, I wonder who narrates it on Audible. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I have I already have the answer to that question. There's actually there's actually quite a few narrated audiobook versions of uh, both the Old Testament, Tanakh, and the New Testament. But mm. the one that I've heard that I, I think we can all consider is undeniably amazing if you ever just sat there and listened to it for a couple of minutes, and that is it being narrated by. James Earl Jones. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, Darth Vader is narrating the Gospels for you guys. How, how, how about that? How, how the Dark Lord of the Sith. Darth Vader is is narrating the Gospels, guys. Take, take of that what you will. It's, it's incredible. You know, he has just the most magical voice. He sounds great doing anything. Or uh, 
or there's another one I think you might like mm. that's actually narrated by Johnny Cash. That's pretty damn cool, actually. I think the only thing that can beat that is Morgan Freeman. You know, he probably has done it. He probably, you know, has, he done probably it has done it. He has to have done it somewhere. <laughs> so yeah, you know, you have James Earl Jones, you have Darth Vader, among many other things, and I adore James Earl Jones. Yeah. And and to the same extent, I love Johnny Cash. So mm. it's amazing these guys when they're when they're doing it. Not to get off on a tangent, but especially the Johnny Cash one, you can just find that on YouTube. It really adds to the experience. It gives it a certain gravitas yeah, when you hear yeah. it from the words of of individuals like that that just have. They bring so much to the table, just this incredible warmth and personality in, in, in stories that are have become larger than life. I mean, these are our stories. Whatever you make mm. of them, they, they inform so much of our, our modern world and so much that has come since. But here's the thing, guys, and the reason I asked you this, Patrick, about have you ever sat down mm. and read it, is I was watching a lecture by a biblical scholar by the name of Dr. Bart Ehrman, who I believe teaches biblical scholarship at UNC Chapel Hill. Great school. Great school. And he's kind of an interesting guy because he was raised uh, Episcopalian, which is basically the New World version of the Church of England, so Protestantism, more or less, even though mm. in terms of the ceremonial stuff, there's a lot of similarities to Catholicism. And he then went on to become an evangelical Christian, and then he broke from that because he started asking himself a lot of difficult analytical questions about who actually wrote these things, where did where did this knowledge come from? You know, he's not an iconoclast uh, in in this case, so let's I don't want to paint that picture. That would be inaccurate, but he has a, a a vigorously analytical mind, and I remember he was opening one of these lectures, and he would say, "How many people in this audience have just opened up?" the Bible to, in this case, the New Testament, just to like one page, randomly move their finger on that page and just picked a verse and just kind of study on that one verse. And he said, and, and most in this case, the, the folks that he was lecturing to, quite a few of them raised their arm. I think a lot of people have probably done that at some point in time or another. Mm. And one of the things that he emphasizes about the Gospels is that in order to really study and understand them, whatever your goal may be, because you can be reading these texts for any number of different reasons. Some of it is obviously going to have a religious and, and theological importance to you. Sometimes it's going to be for the purpose as a historian where you and I say are looking at it and we're asking ourselves, well, how did this all play out? How did they come to be? Or any number of other reasons. But the one thing that he really emphasizes that I think is really important to mention to the audience is that if you really want to understand these, whatever your goals may be, start at the beginning and go all the way through. You have to go all the way through because they're all, they do all seem to have a common thread in them in, in terms of the importance of this guy. And even just to understand a, an individual gospel, just taking a verse from it doesn't really do the job. You have to start at the beginning and take it in as a whole. And as historians and those who are doing some contextual criticism in the way that you and I do and have done for the purposes of AD history, you have to take them as holes. You know, you can't just really cherry pick because when you start cherry picking, a lot of the meaning, a lot of the purpose, a lot of the intent from the original authors is totally lost, which is not exactly helpful for whatever reason you're reading them and going into it and learning about it. So Bart Ehrman being, you know, one of these great modern biblical scholars who's who really goes into this kind of stuff, 
one of the things that he emphasizes is don't just pick out some verse randomly. Start from the beginning and go all the way through. Because it's only then can you really begin getting an under, a desired understanding, whatever that desired understanding may actually be. In this case, Patrick, something I'm curious about that I want to ask you. Mm. Having learned all this and now having covered Christianity, both the world that was surrounding Jesus and mm. what we can say as historians about his life and the creation of the New Testament in the way that it came to be, I know a lot of this information for you was new. Because in AD history, we encounter a lot of information that's new to us because we're not historic Rolodexes and we really do not want to make it come out. I was like, it's not that at all. How have your thoughts and interpretations from a historical perspective, and even a personal one, have changed now that you have become immersed in this history and what is seemingly the best scholarship that's available? I think it's really fascinating. I'm really curious. I've uh, Since doing this, I've, I've... I've wanted to acquire more historical religious history knowledge about how these religions began and started and separated from one another, especially the Abrahamic religions. It's so fascinating seeing, like, as we'll go through history, seeing these three religions form. And it's just a really fascinating story to see how these very three things that I think a lot of people see to be very different all have this initial stem and slowly disperse from one another. Yeah, we all start seem to start at Ur of the Chaldeans with Abraham. And, mm. uh, well... The story very clearly follows from there, if you're familiar with it. But I, one thing I can say, though, is undeniable, and this is something you and I feel have done a very good job at throughout all of this, Patrick. When it comes to the importance of religion in world history, it's obviously a tremendous driving force in terms of the decisions that are made, uh, the values that are undertaken, and taking those particular decisions, and just its overall influence. And now we're only, what, about roughly 120 years out from Jesus' death. Mm. And think about how far this all has come. Yeah, really far. Yeah, it's a short amount of time. It's truly mind-blowing. And it's going to get so much larger. I believe on the planet right now, including all denominations, Christianity accounts for about 3 billion followers in the world. And it started with this vanguard of about a dozen and a half, two dozen mm. shortly after the death of Jesus, and and here we are today. And as we go forward, we're going to keep covering this as it has a, as a historic impact regarding religion. We've talked about Buddhism, we've talked about Judaism, we've talked about Christianity. When Islam shows up, obviously we're going to be giving a great deal of attention to that. So even in a world that, in many respects, certainly the Western world has become far more what we would now call secular— there's no doubt that the historic impact of these religious movements have a profound and absolutely inexplicably harder to comprehend than most things we can imagine impact on what we now consider our HD world. And when you begin parsing apart and you begin trying to find the various shards of knowledge and the various pieces, and you know, you said earlier, it's like, you know, you don't want to say Christianity is as a jigsaw puzzle. Well, I mean, in mm. a sense, all religions are something of a jigsaw puzzle because mm. we don't have all the information and it requires a great deal of effort to find it. So, but what I can say from both, from certainly from a personal perspective as a historian, is that there is tremendous value in trying to piece the puzzle together. 
it's a remarkable intellectual challenge that personally I think has a lot of rewards to it. Not even like I said, this is not a religious conversation, but a historical one. And in the case of religion, and in the case of the rise of Christianity and all the aspects that come about it, including but not limited to the creation of the New Testament, which we'll get more into even more at another time, it is undeniably one of the most gratifying and interesting puzzles historically that we're faced with, and we are faced with a great many. Yeah, yes. And uh, hopefully we'll be unveiling more of that puzzle in the future. And we're actually adding to uh, that puzzle in our next segment. But first, here's a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. So just a quick reminder in this middle segment here, guys. In our last episode, we asked you to send in some responses for what you think future historians will be most interested in in the case of 2020. We know, obviously, the pandemic is going to be item number one. And we certainly want to get your thoughts on that as well. But what else are they going to be interested in? And we want your thoughts on this. And if you send us something and it fits, we're going to put it here in the the segment in our next episode. And we'll go through them because we really enjoyed the last time you did this. And we like getting your thoughts. Yeah. So last time we asked you guys to do this, it was in regards to the entire decade of the 2010s. And the 2020 was basically a decade unto itself. So it seems fitting to do it now. But... Not just the obvious big picture stuff, as Paul mentioned, but just the more, maybe some more personal stuff. What was 2020 to you? How, how the, what events happened do you think it would be mem- remembered by, even in your country specifically? It would be really interesting to hear. You know, it's interesting that you make that comment that 2020 is like a decade unto itself. It actually reminds me, if you can believe it or not, from a quote of Vladimir Lenin, which <laughs> is, there are some weeks when... Decades happen, and there are some decades where only weeks happen. That's a great quote. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, he was certainly quotable, if nothing else. Um, yeah. But we want to hear your thoughts, guys, and we're going to get out there on the next episode. So be sure to either send it as a message on our socials, whether it be on Twitter at AD History PC or on Facebook, AD History Podcast, or on Instagram, AD History Podcast, or if you just want to send a good old fashioned email, send it to AD History Podcast at TGNReview.com. Try to keep it under 250 words. You know, we don't need, we need more of a statement, not quite a manifesto, but we definitely <laughs> do want your usual thoughtful insights. It's one of the best parts to do in the show. We adore hearing from you guys. Without a doubt. And with that, we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. So, Patrick, we're going into the other side of this equation in a very specific circumstance that kind of fits into this whole picture that we just covered that's absolutely intriguing in the best of ways. And so, as I often like to say, Mr. Foot, 
you have the floor. Cool. So thank you, Paul. Uh, as we've discussed with your section just there, we talked about how the Gospels came to be. And of course, the Bible and Christianity is way more than just the Gospels. One of the defining features of Christianity is, of course, the New Testament. It's its very own scripture. It's very writing somewhat exclusive to the religion. And it was around this period in history and why we, we, we decided to have a recap of Christianity for this episode is because it was around this time in history that the New Testament kind of starts to take shape. There's definitely a beta New Testament, as I've sort of dubbed it. And that was with a fella called Marcion of Sinope. And just to bring you guys up to speed a little bit of whatnot, just as we mentioned, as Paul talked about early Christianity, and after Jesus' life, his teachings and death and resurrection, Christianity did start to take shape. Jesus' followers took his message and taught the stories of Jesus and his teachings and shared them. And at first, before being its own religion, Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism. And I even read that early Christians worshipped alongside Jews at synagogues. It wasn't one massive event that kind of led to this separation of all these sort of slow things that just happened over time. Yes, that's true. But I would say, though, that the really the big point of contention that can't be denied, it ultimately boils down to the idea of one believing that Jesus was the Messiah and the other not believing they were the Messiah. And then it kind of broke from there. But you're right, it, it, there's a lot of factors over time that led to this. But that's, that's one of the defining features of where these two break off from each other. Yes, so definitely. One of the, one of the things I've got written in my notes here is um, one of the main reasons is Jews were unhappy that Christians were placing Jesus on the same level as God. And obviously in Judaism, to this day, that's still something of a no-no. And of course, that split between Judaism and Christianity was only made bigger when Marcion came onto the scene. And Marcion, he's a figure in history, I don't think as well known. I definitely hadn't heard of him before I started researching for this, uh, this episode of AD History. But he seems to be quite a big deal. And we don't know too much about him, like so many of these early figures. Um, basically, anyone who wasn't an emperor or a writer, we don't really seem to know too much about them. Uh, but what we know about Marcion is that he was seemingly born in 85 AD in the town of Sinope, which is now a part of Turkey. And he was either thought to be a wealthy ship owner or a ship builder. Something to do with ships, that's for sure. And he was a wealthy, respected individual. And he used this wealth of his, whether it was through ship owning or shipbuilding, to make large donations to the church. And from Sinope, he eventually travelled to Rome and joined a Christian community in the city. And not only was Christianity butting heads with Judaism anyway at this time, uh, Marcion himself was starting to butt heads with the religious leaders there. And so much so, they actually started his own sect of the religion, Marcionism. And his followers were called Marcionites or Marcionionites. It's kind of a kind of a hard word to quite get your head around. It kind of invokes the idea, of course, happening 2,000 years before, of Trotskyites. Exactly, yes. Yeah, the classic eights. <laughs> Which kind of makes sense if you consider that that Stalin, of course, came from Russian Orthodox Seminary, and he might have been borrowing from 
this kind mm. of idea of putting that suffix "ites" on it, which of course yeah. is very, very derogatory in many ways. Mm. Exactly, and uh, Marcion was an interesting fella. And one of the biggest things Marcion did in regards to Christianity, he flat out rejected the Old Testament. He said, "No, this is this, this is no good. This is some really fascinating stuff." Uh, the Old Testaments were the primary scriptures of Judaism, and they still are to this day. They would go on to become a huge part of the Hebrew Bible slash Tanakh. And not only did he reject the Old Testament, but also the God in the Old Testament, which he called Demurgi. hope I pronounced that right. Well, this is something that I find deeply ironic, Patrick, because naturally, and we've talked about this before, Jesus had never lived a day in which there was a thing called Christianity or he was called Christ. He was most certainly a first century Jew living in first century Roman Palestine, where all of his references, all of his teachings, all of his religious experience is coming from the very book that Marcion is outright rejecting. In addition to very much, even though talking about it in much more intimate terms, the God of Abraham that is so important in the Old Testament or Tanakh. And Marcion's just throwing that out the window. How ironic is that? It, it's so ironic. Like I said, he's an interesting figure, Marcion. And while, uh, some, as we mentioned with his kind of beta New Testament, that stayed around his most outlandish claim of rejecting the Old Testament really didn't stick, really didn't stick right now. The Old Testament is still well and truly a thing, but I guess you could credit him with dubbing it the Old Testament. But the reason he rejected the Old Testament and the God in it was simply due to the actions of, of God in the Old Testament. I think a lot of people know about this. I was talking to some of my friends and family about this um, over the Christmas break it seems to be a pretty common known thing. Like, Paul, if I had to ask you, what is the key difference between God in the Old Testament and the New Testament? So when you're looking at what we call the Old Testament or the Tanakh, God's a much more dynamic figure. God can be benevolent, God can be wrathful, and God takes a very specific interest in the Hebrew people. In the New Testament, however, we're getting a, a very different conception of God, which is that it's a much more intimate relationship between the world, the physical world, those that God, in this case, were supposed to create, you know, within the context of the of scriptures he was supposed to, you know, that God was supposed to create, and a much more consistently benevolent figure. The reader, and in the case of Jesus, speaks in much closer terms to God and God's not that active player. God is not wrathful. God is, is everything all at once, more than not, pretty consistently benevolent and much, much more intimate in terms of how Jesus is referring to God, as opposed to God in the Old Testament, which God is essentially an active participant that's capable of a great many different things. So they're a very, very different contrast between the two. But what I'm curious about are the answers that you had, because you had mentioned at one point that you had talked about it somewhat with your family and your friends. And I'm curious for yourself, what did you guys take from that question? 
Yeah, so uh, you, you put it in much more eloquently than my friends and family did, that's for sure. They were just sort of... <laughs> they they were just like, oh, he's really evil in the Old Testament, isn't he? It's a very known thing that in the Old Testament, God did a lot more punishing and things like that. And as you mentioned, he was an all-being. He could experience all these things. That's what the New Testament shone a light on. God was many facetes, faceted. However, Marcion believed that these were two different gods. He genuinely believed that the God of the Old Testament and the God who Jesus spoke of were two different beings. And that it's a really, it's quite a high concept thing to believe in. It's quite a big, big thing. And like I said, a lot of the stuff he discussed hasn't stayed, but to actually go, whoa, that, that's quite a, that's quite a big claim. And he saw the God of the Jews as a creator. And he, uh, this, this God ruled on judgment and violence. Whereas he saw the God that Jesus spoke of as being a higher being who provided escape from judgment and he described these two gods as the inferior god of the jews and superior god jesus was a messenger for and this of course angered many people first and foremost the jews like one of the key reasons i guess uh, marcion isn't as celebrated anymore is because he's somewhat anti-semitic and we'll talk about that a bit more later or not somewhat he was an anti-semitic person he, he didn't like Judaism or Jews or their Old Testament as he dubbed it and it would go on to be dubbed but it wasn't only the Jews he angered he angered other Christians Marcion was denounced by many Christians he was dubbed a heretic and even excommunicated by the Church of Rome I so said this this was a big controversial guy even to other Christians he was controversial absolutely because the position that he's taking versus the position that so many other people are taking are, are are impossible to reconcile between the two because Jesus is most certainly referring to the gods of the Jews the gods of the Old Testament but his interpretation is different in many 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 ways and how he taught about God and if the big man himself is referring to what we know as the God of the Old Testament but taking a very different look at that God still the same God. So the idea that there, there are two different ones is, is truly impossible to reconcile, especially when the big guy in question, the one that really matters, there isn't a chance he was talking about any other God than what we know to be and what Marcion considered, more importantly, the God of the Jews. So it just doesn't add up. And so I'm not really surprised that came after him with torches and, and pitchforks, proverbially speaking. Yeah, it is. It's a really outlandish thing. Like you said, it was his interpretation. I guess I guess a lot of religion could be defined as different people's interpretations. Like we talked about with the Gospels. It's, it's different. It, it's for people's interpretations of somewhat the same events. And this was Marcion's. And speaking of Gospels, Marcion even gave himself a Gospel. But we'll talk about that in just a moment. And this is about Marcion's canon and what I've dubbed his beta New Testament. Um, his rejection of the Old Testament meant that his new sect of Christianity needed scriptures and this led Marcion to compile a new biblical canon, one which would go on to be considered the first form of the New Testament as, as this is all about. And a biblical canon is a collection of writings and scriptures that is considered divine and the modern canon is made up of, uh, I believe it's the four Gospels, uh, the Paulistine uh, letters, and some 
Acts of the Apostles. Uh, you also have the book of Revelations. There's quite a bit there beyond just the four yeah. Gospels. The Gospel of Paul DiCostanzo knows his stuff. Which, which, <laughs> which is still being drafted, by the way. It comes out sometime in 2022. If you're interested, it'll be available yeah. on Kindle for Amazon. Brilliant. I'd like to know who's narrating the audiobook version of it, <laughs> or just yourself. Uh, I think you just got voluntold, Patrick. <laughs> Brilliant. So, uh, anyway, bit of a tangent. The modern New Testament is made up of 27 books, as, as, as we previously just rambled on about. And Marcion's canon wasn't quite as large. His canon was just 11 books split between two sections, the Evangelicon and the Apostolicon. Might have pronounced those wrong. That doesn't matter. You can read them for yourselves. The Evangelicon was composed of something he called the Gospel of Marcion. So he did have his own gospel, kind of. It's a slight catch. Um, I believe you can probably most likely read a version of the Gospel of Marcion now, somewhere online. Most scholars believe he didn't write a brand new gospel. He kind of just edited and hacked out a version of the Gospel of Luke, which is just kind of a bit silly. Like I mentioned, he was a bit of an odd, unique character. And like we, we modern eyes will be like, this is really reminiscent of the Gospel of Luke, but he dubbed it his own gospel, the Gospel of Marcion. This is my retelling of it. But he's literally a hack. He's literally hacked his way of a different gospel. I just find that quite interesting. And the Apostolicon is a collection of 10 of Paul's letters. The reason Marcion only included Paul's letters is because he thought Paul was the only apostle who truly understood Jesus. And what exactly this meant, I'm not too sure. Did Marcion think Paul also knew that it was two different gods? I don't know, but it was these letters he took a liking to. And all of this, what is in Marcion's, uh, what was in Marcion's Old New Testament are still found in the modern New Testament. Most, rend most renditions of the New Testament today will include all these things. Of course, it'll be the more fuller Gospel of Luke, not Marcion's weird hack down Reader's Digest version of it, as you refer to um, a previous Gospel as Paul. Yeah, when I'm looking at his canon, mm. as far as I know, I don't see anything here on the list that has any of the potential Gospels that would have existed at the time. It looks like it's mostly composed of Paul's epistles, which I think is awfully interesting. And the other thing I find quite quite strange here, because well, something I think it's important to cover, I'm sure you would agree, is for all intents and purposes in our conversation, who was Paul? So this is uh, the Apostle Paul, or St. Paul as he's known as. Yes. Just to give a little bit of just kind of brief insight on this particular subject, because it's important. Paul is a very large figure in the New Testament. The way the story goes is that Paul was originally known as Saul. I believe he actually was a Jew, but according to the scriptures, which is different than being a historian, but it's important you at least understand the story because the story is relevant in this situation, which makes it relevant to the greater history, that he was an attorney, I believe, and he was known for persecuting Christians, going after them for a number of reasons, until he had what was a major revelation What's on the road to Damascus, where basically he just gets a metaphysical back of the head by a two-by-four <laughs> and has this incredible revelation, I believe, where he actually has a vision where he sees Jesus, and it changes his outlook entirely. He changes his name from Saul to Paul, he goes the Christian route, and all of these epistles are are their letters to various Christian communities all over the Mediterranean basin. Like we were talking about earlier, they're popping up, and he, he's writing 
them these letters. I think there's even a couple of them where he actually apologizes for their length, which is kind of funny. He's basically giving all these folks guidance. But one thing that's important to know about Paul is Paul, as I understand it, never actually knew Jesus, but he also became a huge figure. And he's and he's writing these things not very long after Jesus's death. So he's a, a very important figure in, in that respect. And the other thing, if I remember correctly, is as far as the authenticity of his epistles that we have today, from what I understand, they're generally considered to be pretty darn accurate to the original drafts, which is really quite important. So Marcion's importance and emphasis on this can only go so far as we understand exactly who Paul was and what he was doing. No, thank you so much for adding that in. That was a really good uh, chunk of information that I had failed to mention about the um, about Paul's letters. Thanks We're for talking team. about that. Yeah, no, it was really good to know. Uh, so, of course, we want to talk about what impact Marcion's new canon had on the Christian world and the world as a whole at that time. And while Marcion did have his followers Many criticized this idea of Christianity, most notably the Christian writer Tertullian, who wrote five books titled Against Marcion. And this is our primary source on Marcion himself. Oh we, we know mainly about this guy because some wrote about how ridiculous he was because none of Marcion's actual writings have survived. And I think that's great. I love the fact that this guy is only known by sources saying how rubbish he is for like oh, no, a that, term. That, that's just so history to a T. Yeah. And Tertullian, you know, obviously was a bit more of a level headed guy, probably a more traditional Christian. He, yeah, he literally wrote five books called Against Marcy. That's how much he disagreed with uh wow. this guy's beliefs. And of course, as mentioned, his ideas did get him expelled from the church, called him a her heretic, all that sort of stuff. Yet the Marcionite following grew, and some believe that over the following decade, it was something of a co um, competitor to Catholicism, of course, another sect of Christianity that was growing. Uh, however, Marcion died around 160 AD, so around the end of today's segment of the podcast. So kind of the latter half of his life is what we talked about in this era of history right now. And the Marcionite church did continue to grow after his death for some time, and and I believe the Marcionite Church does still exist in some form to this day, which you know, shows the dedication to it. And at his worst, he is described as a heretic, a herse, and a Jew hater. And anti-Semitism, I mentioned, is a thing tied heavily with him. There's undoubtedly his urge to create a new a sect of Christianity undoubtedly comes from a dislike of Judaism and their God and their writings. It, it, you can't really deny that. And while many people now label him as a little modern anti-Semitic heretic, which is totally deserving, he did play an important role in the foundation of modern Christianity. So what does modern Christianity owe Marcion? Well, some believe uh, quite a few things. Uh, some Christians believe Marcion uh, gave them a new testament and that Christians owe to Marcion that particular form of New Testament, and that Marcion gave Christianity the prominent voice of Paul in the New Testament, which, as you mentioned, Paul, uh, this Paul is getting confused now, too many Pauls, um, that Paul was a, is, is a huge deal to this day in the New Testament, as you mentioned. 
and Christians owe Marcion to Christian identity built on unique scriptures all of their own, as I mentioned at the beginning. Before this, Christianity didn't have its own set of scriptures. It was sharing it with Judaism, the Old Bible, the Tanakh, the Old Bible, the Old Testament even, the Tanakh. This gave Christianity the concept to have their own scriptures completely unique to them. And that wouldn't happen. And, you know, like I said, the New Testament is a defining feature of Christianity. It's the one thing I suppose the the other Abraham religions don't have. And that concept of a New Testament wouldn't exist without Marcion. So despite all his flaws, his huge amount of flaws, he did give something to the world. I think it's fair to say that he did contribute something to the world, to be sure. And I have a few questions for you, but we'll start off with this one. Was there anything else minus his largely violent nature that made Marcion question the God and validity of the Old Testament and really kind of led him to make a distinction between two distinct and separate gods in both of them? So, as I mentioned, a lot of this came about and a lot of religious things come about due to different interpretations of Mm. the written word. And there was one interesting part in Genesis 3.9. God says, Adam, where are you? And of course, this made Marcion doubt God and his omnipotence. And I, I don't know all the omni words, but, you know, we all believe the popular idea is that God is all seeing, all hearing, all knowing. So for God to ask any question, even Adam, where are you? Like Marcion thought, hold on, if you can see everything and hear everything and know everything, why would you be questioning where Adam is? It's yeah. a kind of valid point, but it's, it's cl- clutching its straws to an extent. When I first saw that, the first thing I thought to myself, this is someone working really, really hard in overtime (laughs) to find something that reconciles his distinct interpretation that he's trying to push. And you can do that in any text whatsoever, not just the Bible, whether it be the Tanakh or the New Testament, whatever the case may be. He's really working overtime to to make his point. And, well, yeah, okay, sure, we take the, the same... It's the same idea as the old track question, you know. Is God so powerful that he can create a boulder that he himself can't lift? It kind of feels like it's in that camp, if you follow yeah. my thinking. It's, it's really clutching at straws. And, like, yeah, it's just... It, it, it's so easy to take a single line, a single question out of context and just run with it. It's, it's a spin, more or less. Marcion was a very ancient spin doctor. He was cherry picking. At least that's the way it comes off to me. Mm. And the other thing, I'm still having so much trouble understanding myself, even as the New Testament exists today, like you and I could go out to a Barnes and Noble or, or Waterton's and just pick up like a King James Bible or whatever the mm. case may be. Wh- whichever Bible is your choice, you know, that's or no Bible if that's your thing. But mm. the point being is that even today when you're reading these Gospels, you really cannot fully understand them without a strong working knowledge of the Old Testament. <laughs> because Jesus is, is so referential in that regard, because that is the work and text that he is teaching from. I don't know if I mentioned it in either of the two episodes that we where Jesus was very heavily featured, but the thing that made him so radical— The thing that made him so new school 
was the fact that he was so old school and was always going back into what we call the New Testament today. And that's very much where it comes from. So if you try to hack that down or play down the importance, you're clearly only serving your own interest in that case because there's no chance you can truly understand what the heck Jesus was saying or the points that he was trying to make without the Old Testament. It is absolutely bizarre. I 100% agree with you. I just have to take a moment to say that you sounded like, I imagine, a really cheesy pastor trying to get down at the kids. Like, what made Jesus so new school is he was so old school. <laughs> it's just, like, I've seen video, I've seen like American shows where they have like these pastors who are trying to get down at the kids. And it just, it just reminded me of that. Like, <laughs> it just reminded me of that. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know if you noticed, but I just, I, I there were so many shows with characters like that in there. I can't think of one. Oh my goodness, Patrick. Like you, these sort of people who are trying to get kids into religion. It's just, he's so new school because he's old school. It's just, just brought that to mind. For once in my life, I am temporarily <laughs> speechless. <laughs> but I will, I will carry on speaking instead. Yeah, it's going to take me a minute. No, it's very interesting stuff you just mentioned there, Paul. Well, you mentioned how Jesus was so referential to the Old Testament. So how could yeah. you have any sort of Christianity without the Old Testament. You've got to remember, one of the main basis of Marcion's canon was the Gospel of Marcion, which was a really doctored, edited version of the Gospel of Luke. So I don't know this for sure, but we could easily argue that this doctored version of the Gospel of Luke involved removing references to the Old Testament. Oh, it's entirely possible. That's, but that's, it's an idea. Yeah, but I mean, if he's trying to butcher the Gospel of Luke, he's going to be doing a lot of work there if that's his goal. Yeah, like he seemed like a guy who did enjoy to make a lot of work for himself. It is undeniable. I think if there if there is a legacy of anything that we can extrapolate based on what you've told us today, that is certainly one of those things. Another question I have is, you know, ground rules alert. This is a counterfactual, mm. but what do you think Christianity might have become minus Marcion's contribution? The simple answer is, I guess, like you said counterfactual we don't know this is very much a speculation hat it could easily have just become what it is to this day so i'm sure someone else might have turned up and given christianity its own scripture it said hypothetical it could have stayed just a sect of judaism in the same way a lot of uh, religions especially the abrahamic religions have different sects of them like uh, protestant and catholicism in christianity now it could have become a subcategory of Judaism without his own scripture it couldn't have a defining feature and funnily enough we kind of talked about this briefly with our life of Brian analysis um when Brian's mum says because it's written that's why people put so much stock in the written word it's just something people pe people respect and obey words because they're written down and Marcion given Christianity its own scriptures could have helped propel it to becoming the unique religion it is. So you really do believe he had enough influence that had he not been present, there would not have been splitting of parties in on a theological basis? I think they were probably always set to split. It's just one idea that maybe, you know, if I'm being really hypothetical, maybe about Marcion, it would have just stayed a section of Judaism, but I don't know for sure. Fair enough. That, that, that's fair enough. Mm. And obviously this is a a counterfactual question and there are a lot of moving pieces that are going on at this time when you know it because it does take uh 
a handful of centuries before Christianity becomes truly formalized. You know, we're still a good deal off from, like, for example, uh, the Council of Nicaea or something like that, and, and certainly well off from the 4th century when Rome adopts Christianity itself. You know, I'm not surprised looking at this, how how there was a great deal of infighting. Anytime you're talking about these really big ideas that mean a great deal to people, the way these stories seem to play out, and Marcion is very much a salient example of this, is there is a lot of breaking off, there's a lot of splits, there's a lot of disagreement between what's important, what's not, what's more important than something else, what should be there, what shouldn't be there. That's really humans working just in the way that humans tend to do, especially when they're trying to grasp towards a common understanding of something that has moved them as much as Christianity had at, at that point in time. Uh, the other question I'm curious about is, and this is really hard to say, but from a historic, you know, looking at it from a historical presentation point of view, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Does Marcion deserve the image he now has? I really think it's a yes and no. I think, I think most historical figures, maybe perhaps today, should be known for everything they did, not just one point. And this is something, um, I guess, is is being talked about somewhat more often, especially in the modern climate. Um, celebrated historical figures, all their actions are being brought to light in some instances, and we're starting to unveil more about the people they were. And I think this should be the same case for Marcion. Yes and no, he wasn't a great guy. He really wasn't, like... Even at the time, you know, other Christians didn't like him. Jews definitely didn't like him. And it has to be remembered he had really radical thoughts on 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 religion, on Christianity, on Judaism. You know, he it, it was if if Christianity was a sect of Judaism at the time, then Marcionism was a sect of Christianity. You know, he went further. He he thought, you know, this isn't enough. I this isn't different enough from Judaism. I want it to be even further from that. And he was anti-Semite. That's undoubtable. Like so much of his ideas are founded in anti being anti-Semitic, not liking Jews. So he should be remembered for doing those things and having quite unpopular opinions. But conversely, he should be somewhat remembered. It would be a misservice if you're ever talking about the history of Christianity. It would be a disservice to not mention Marcion because prior to him, a concept of a New Testament isn't a thing. If you look into the history of the New Testament, most sources put the earliest concept of it to Marcion. So he kind of needs to be mentioned in the history of Christianity. But he wasn't a good bloke other than that. He shouldn't be just sort of this singular figure only known for bringing about the concept of the New Testament. He needs to be remembered as someone who was a bit of a twerp, but also did this one quite important thing. So when I hear that there is somebody who's literally written five essays about yeah. against Marcion, and we don't have anything of Marcion's writings today as far as I know, and he obviously has this reputation, and what I'm about to say is not being an apologist for the guy, this is just looking at it from a historical perspective. For me, when I see that, the first thing, the, my first initial disposition is skepticism, because we have one side of the story. And we don't have anything on the other side of the story. And I would be very curious 
to see if for whatever reason, hypothetically, it were uncovered that we would be able to see his actual written words and thoughts to get a more complete understanding of the man. Now, that's not to say what they're saying about him is inaccurate. Based on everything we've seen, it seems pretty clear that everything we've talked about is probably the case. But when I'm only getting one side of the story, first thing I'm thinking to myself is, I have one side of the story, I have none for the other side. And how how can I draw and and come to some accurate and more definitive conclusions on, at the very least, the nature of the man. And that's something that just speaks to me. But he definitely seems to fall in within a certain group that are very, very important in terms of uh, the creation and collation of the New Testament. But in his case, for all intents and purposes, and certainly at the time, it certainly seemed like he went the heretic route, using the old H word, at least relative to the people that were around him, because, boy, did he seem to stir up a whole hornet's nest. Yeah, he really did stir up a hornet's nest, and he was a heretic. In his time, people called him a heretic. We today are calling him a heretic, but he did do one pretty important thing, and that was create the concept of a New Testament, which is still a defining feature of Christianity to this day. Yeah, because it's all coming around at this time, and I'm not I'm not at all surprised, like we were talking about earlier, that there are different conceptions, different canons, what should stay, what shouldn't stay, what's important, what isn't, that sort of thing. And if, if anything, he's a very fine case study in terms of how these things tend to play out, and, and certainly relative to Christianity in general, because it was a long march between when Jesus died to where we are now, all the way to the present. A lot of different contributions, a great deal of things changed about these texts, and the case study of Marcion, I think, is really quite excellent at giving a salient example of just the kind of thing we're talking about. Yes, you couldn't put it better myself, Paul, and we have still got a long way to go for Christianity. It's still a few hundred more years until the Roman Empire with Constantine even adopts Christianity themselves, but that's definitely something we'll be talking about in the future. There's absolutely no escaping it. And with that, we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. 
Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.